You are Locked On Timberwolves, your daily Minnesota Timberwolves podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to the Locked On Wolves podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. My name is Ben Beacon. I'm the host of Locked On Wolves. I'm also the co-editor of Dunking With Wolves, the Timberwolves site on the Fan Side Network. Today's episode is brought to you by Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com, use promo code LOCK15, you'll get 15% off your next order. Happy Thursday, everybody. Today's show is fairly packed. Some pretty big Timberwolves news related to the ownership I, th- I think it's fair to call it a saga at this point. Um, the the potential change in ownership took another twist, another turn on Wednesday afternoon. So I want to cover that off the top, uh, briefly touch on NBA playoffs, and then get into the Jaden McDaniels player review today. Um, that'll be the show. A uh, lot to talk about. Um, a quick reminder is always off the top here. You can follow the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. That, of course, includes Apple, Google, Spotify, and uh, the all-new Odyssey app. That's Odyssey, A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can also follow on Twitter at LockedOnTWolves and at BBeacon, two Bs, two Es, C-K-E-N. Okay, um, let's start with the, the big news. The you know Just get right into it. The, the news broke on Wednesday afternoon. This is like mid-afternoon Central Time that uh, this was Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reporting that that Meyer Orbach, who is the the largest minority stakeholder in the Timberwolves, he owns uh, apparently a little bit more than 17%. You might remember he came on board a few years ago, a couple percent, 3%, something like that at the time, and has slowly been buying up additional shares in the team. He now owns over 17%, and he has issued a complaint, or filed a complaint, I should say, with the U.S. District Court in Minneapolis, according to Adrian Wojnarowski at ESPN, alleging that Glenn Taylor did not honor the so-called tag-along rights and the partnership agreement between uh, between Orbach's company and Glenn Taylor. Basically, that means, and this is, this is me interpreting Woj's interpretation of the agreement, um, but in layman's terms, it seems basically to mean that before the majority owner, which is Glenn Taylor, sells the majority stake in the team, he has to go to the minority owners and say, hey, do you want to divest before this team is sold? Like, basically, do you want to get out before I sell the team. Um, that allegedly has not happened, according to Meyer Orbach's complaint that he's filed. And uh, this is now reading directly from Woj's report at ESPN. He says, when Orbit, Orbach's company, attempted to exercise its tag-along rights, or I'm sorry, this is Woj actually quoting the complaint. So this is a quote within the quote. Um, the complaint says, quote, when Orbit, Orbach's company, attempted to exercise his tag-along rights, Taylor not only ignored Orbit, but also privately stated, contrary to his public statements, that he's not proposing to enter into a, quote, control sale with Rodriguez and Laurie at this time, meaning Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie, of course, the two primary names in the new uh, ownership group, or so the supposed new ownership group, expected new ownership group. Instead, Taylor is claiming that any, quote, control sale will be years in the future and therefore Orbit currently does not have any tag-along rights. The complaint continues, Taylor is wrong, although the deal with Rodriguez and Laurie was structured in a clumsy attempt to circumvent Orbit's tag-along rights, it does not deprive Orbit of its tag-along rights. The tag-along rights are triggered regardless of whether control is transferred in a single transaction or a series of related transactions, according to the Timberwolves partnership agreement. So basically, you'll remember that Glenn Taylor uh, reportedly was going to maintain a minority share in the team and wouldn't turn over complete control, or, or I should say majority control, until 2024, and then would still remain in the background as a minority owner, while Lori and Alex Rodriguez took full control or majority control. 
According to this complaint, Taylor seemed to think that this means there's no tag-along rights, whereas that's not how Orbach interpreted it, and uh, therefore is filing this complaint. So best case scenario, it's not a good look for Glenn Taylor. It's not a good look for the Timberwolves organization, for the franchise. Worst case scenario is it could throw a wrench in the entire possible possibility of a transaction. So that's one piece of this. The second piece, and the one that's grabbing most of the headlines in the Twin Cities, and, and, and I guess rightfully so, and concern in the Twin Cities, is the fact that this report tells us that there's apparently no provision, no clause in this pending deal, this agreement, this purchase agreement that would keep the Timberwolves in Minneapolis. This is again quoting Woj. His article says, uh, despite Taylor's public statements to the contrary, he has included no provision in the $1.5 billion sales agreement with Lorian Rodriguez that requires the new ownership group to keep the franchise in Minnesota upon taking control of the team, according to an exhibit in the complaint. In fact, new details of Taylor's sale agreement with Lorian Rodriguez expected to be completed by July 1st, include a clause under governance matters that lists several actions that would require new ownership to present to the advisory board for discussion, including any plan to relocate the team outside of the Twin Cities market. According to an exhibit in the agreement in the complaint, the agreement between Taylor and the Lori Rodriguez group acknowledges that the advisory board is advisory only and no action requires the approval of in any form by the advisory board to be effective. So again, in layman's terms, that means that there, frankly, there's nothing in the contract or the agreement that says that Lorian Rodriguez will not move the team. Now, from the very beginning of really any potential sale happening, Glenn Taylor said, hey, I'm going to include this in the agreement. Whoever buys the team will not move the team because I, I will put in the agreement that they can't. It's always been been uh, a little murky as to how that would be possible. I mean, how would you possibly sell an asset and then make sure that the next person that owns the asset doesn't do what you don't want them to do with it. If you're no longer in the picture, even if Glenn's a minority owner, he'd have very limited say in anything that would happen moving forward down the road, right? That was always, I was always dubious about that as was, you know, really anybody in the media. I mean, anybody locally was always kind of like, eh, you know, how is this possible? And the, the Target Center le breaking the lease with the city of Minneapolis was only a $50 million fee, which is uh, frankly, uh, uh, what it's less than 2%, 1.5% of the reported sale price that Lori and Rodriguez were going to buy the team for. So if anybody wanted to move the team, they could theoretically do that. Now, this, the next piece of this is, even even if that's not in there, now I, I guess I guess the most alarming thing is that it, it shows that Glenn Taylor hasn't been truthful. Either something majorly changed in the past couple of weeks, or Glenn Taylor was just not truthful all along, which seems silly because obviously this was going to come to light at some point. And that's just another thing that paints Taylor and the Timberwolves franchise in a, in a terrible light. And what, you know, why, well, how should Timberwolves fans feel about this? If Glenn Taylor has said all along, Hey, I'm going to put in the agreement. We can't move the team. The next center can't move the team. And then that's not in the agreement. Um, now from a practical, like set aside that the optics of that and set aside, uh, you know, the, the, the reality of that not being in the agreement, there's still several steps that would need to happen. And this is far from a one foot out the door situation. This still is not the Seattle supersonics becoming the Oklahoma city thunder by any stretch of the imagination for, and I've talked about this, I guess it's been several weeks uh, since I've talked about this on the show, but there's several, there's several steps to this process, right? First of all, the NBA is motivated to expand and not to relocate because there's a $2.5 billion expansion fee. The Twin Cities are the number 15 media market, according to Nielsen data, uh, demographic data, in the entire United States. The Twin Cities are number 15. Seattle's number 13. There's no incentive for the NBA 
to allow or to grease the wheels for a team to move from the number 15 market to the number 13 market when the league wants to expand anyway. Adam Silver's on record as recently as December, the start of this current season, that he wants the league to expand. He said it's even, quote, inevitable. So there's no... There's no reason why the league would say, yeah, let's leave the 15th biggest market for the 13th. And then, you know, we're, we're what? I mean, treading water at that point, right? I mean, you're not adding more markets to the league. You're not expanding um, interest in the league at that point. Uh, you know, why not add a couple of teams? Add a team in Seattle and add a team in Vegas or add a team in, uh, I don't know, one of the other markets that's been clamoring for a team for some time now, right? I mean, whether that's the Kansas City or Virginia Beach area or whatever that ends up being, um, I, why, why would you take a team out of the number 15 market and move it to the number 13 market? So that, that's a, that's a major thing. And Glenn Taylor's brought that up before too. It's expensive to relocate a team. Um, now it's also expensive to pay the $2.5 billion franchise fee, but that's another reason why the league would be motivated to, to push potential buyers, uh, or potential groups that would start a new team in that direction instead of buying an existing team and moving it. Um, Adam Silver's on record as saying he wants basketball in the Twin Cities. Obviously, that was important to David Stern, Adam Silver's former boss. Um, so there's so many other layers to this beyond what we learned on Wednesday. Um, and, and again, I think we're far from a one foot out the door situation when it comes to the franchise. I don't even think it's particularly outside of the outside of the fact that Taylor apparently was just not being truthful, which is alarming. Um, I don't think that this really worries me that much more, to be honest. It was always a possibility. It's still a possibility. It was always unlikely the team was going to move, even though it was Alex Rodriguez and there's ties to Seattle and, and all that stuff. Um, it was always a possibility. It was always unlikely. And I think both things are still true. I think it's still a possibility. The team relocates. I also think it's unlikely. Um, for all the reasons that I've listed. So, uh, and and obviously I don't need to say on this show, the Twin Cities are a more than viable professional sports market. They obviously support uh, all five major sports plus a very successful WNBA team. The Timberwolves obviously did well in terms of attendance in the Kevin Garnett era and the, 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 the fan base obviously has supported the Timberwolves on some level through thick and thin. Clearly attendance hasn't been where it should be or where the NBA would like it to be, or anybody would like it to be over the past decade and a half. But there's a direct line to be drawn from miserable basketball to a, it's understandable that there'd be something of a, of a, of a downturn in terms of casual interest. The diehard fans are still there. That's never been the issue. But when the team is good, there's plenty of support locally. So, you know, there's no reason why the team should vacate the market and, and there's plenty of hurdles for that to happen. Still, the news Wednesday is unsettling. It's unsettling for a couple of reasons. The the primary one being that Glenn Taylor apparently hasn't been truthful with the market that he apparently loves and with his home state. And um, it's it's worrisome, um, I, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. But again, I don't know that it necessarily changes the likelihood that the team moves that much. Um, I think those things still say the same. Um, and at the same time, I think it's important to remember Alex Rodriguez and Mark Laurie are the ones that we should be paying attention to, assuming that the Meyer Orbach complaint is something gets hashed out there, assuming that the two sides can come to some sort of agreement, Orbach and, and Taylor, that is. Assuming Laurie and Rodriguez still take control of the team, they're the ones we should be listening to. Glenn Taylor is not going to be the majority owner for very much longer. It doesn't matter what he thinks should or should not happen to the team once he's out of the picture. 
it matters what Lori and Rodriguez have to say, and they haven't publicly spoken. They had a statement. They obviously met with members of the franchise and players a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, but until they speak publicly and the transaction becomes official or or they they have a press conference or whatever that might be and, and reiterate that, you know, Minneapolis-St. Paul is where they want to be with this franchise, I, I think there can it's fair to have a bit of an unsettled feeling. To be clear, Clay Bennett did the same thing in Seattle before moving the team to Oklahoma City. He said they intended to remain in Seattle. That was obviously never the case. That was an even more obvious situation that that there was something else afoot than there is here. Um, again, I'll, I'll leave it with this and I'll repeat myself again. There's always been a chance of the team relocating when the when when the team's for sale. That's always been true. It's always been unlikely. There's several hurdles in the way. The news Wednesday doesn't change anything other than it leaves those doors open, maybe slightly more ajar, but I don't think it significantly impacts the odds that the Timberwolves are no longer in Minneapolis in the next few years. Um, so obviously a situation to monitor. Uh, there's, there's a lot to pay attention to there, um, but it's certainly not a five alarm fire at this point. Okay. Next, what I want to do is I want to get into the Jaden McDaniels season review. We'll close today with a quick NBA playoff uh, kind of whip around here that I, that I want to do. Uh, but first though, before we get into, uh, into Jaden McDaniels, let's talk about our friends at rockauto.com. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible to stock all the parts you need in a traditional chain storefront. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait while the person at the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand that their warehouse happens to carry? You have a computer with access to rockauto.com both at home and in your pocket. RockAuto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to RockAuto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, Prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the exact same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why would you spend up to twice as much for the exact same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. All right, let's continue our player review series by talking about Jaden McDaniels. Again, we're going reverse order in minutes played. So we're now into the top five of, of players, Timberwolves players, in terms of minutes played total this season, not per game, total minutes played. Jaden McDaniels was, of course, the Wolves. Uh, I guess technically he wasn't drafted by the Timberwolves, but he was their third and final first round draft pick. He was picked by the Lakers and, and sent to Minnesota via trade. He was the 28th overall pick in the draft. Of course, everyone knows that coming into the 2019-2020 season, he was thought of as a likely lottery pick, possibly a top five, top 10 NBA draft pick. He was a five-star high school recruit, chose to stay home in Washington, play for the University of Washington. It was very good in non-conference play, but struggled when they got to Pac-12 play, had some issues getting a bunch of technical fouls, struggled offensively in terms of efficiency. There were concerns about attitude, which um, frankly seems crazy now, given everything we saw from him in Minnesota this year. And nobody really knew what he'd be like defensively because Washington played his own so frequently and, and McDaniels just didn't get the opportunity to use his athleticism and length in one-on-one -on -one situations defensively very often. And I mean, Jaden McDaniels was fantastic as a rookie. I mean, he was, he was far better than 
really anyone and certainly myself thought he would be as a rookie. Remember, this is uh, he was he was 20 when the season started. He turned he turns 21 at the end of September this year, had one season in college and was it was a very mixed bag, I think, is a kind way of putting it. Um, he didn't start the season in the Timberwolves rotation. He only played in five of the Wolves first 11 games this year and received a bunch of DNPCDs. And then from that point forward, he was in the rotation outside of a, a brief uh, absence due to personal reasons towards the end of the season. Um, he played in virtually every game the rest of the way. He ended up starting uh, many of the of the final games of the season outside of those that, that brief absence. And then right when he came back, he came off the bench. But he became a starter for this team. You look at his game log and, and his season improved. Um, he just continued to get more and more comfortable at the NBA level. So what I want to do is break down his strengths and weaknesses this year, what his outlook is for next year and, and how I think Chris Finch might use him moving forward. Um, to me, the most impressive thing was the defense. We just didn't know what we were going to get from him on the defensive end of the floor. And he wasn't, he wasn't perfect. He's not a lockdown defender yet. He's not maybe quite as switchable as, as the Wolves would like him to be, but he showed the ability to guard most fours and most threes, the ability to switch onto some twos and, and some quicker threes and, and do okay. Um, he, he can't guard fives for the most part, and he struggles with some bigger fours, but the vast majority of threes and fours, Jaden McDaniels can be a really good defender against them. Um, he uses his size, his his height, his length, his athleticism. He's quick enough laterally to stay in front of most of those wing guy oh, forwards, really. Um, and it was it was just impressive to me the the way that he was able to stay in front of players, but. If he wasn't able to, the recovery speed, and this is in part due to his his length as well, he was able to get chased on blocks. You know, players could turn on a switch, guards could turn the corner on him, but he could catch up and still get in the picture to contest a shot, maybe even get a block off the backboard. Um, and the recovery to me was very impressive. Transition defense, very good. Um, overall, within the team concept, he was a fairly good defender as well. Um, and that was something that nobody was expecting. I think I, for the most part, draft experts, scouts, people had largely written off what he might be able to do defensively because of the issues that that Washington team had at times in college uh, defensively and, and the fact that nobody had seen him play uh, defensively. And so often, and this is this is unfair, painting with broad strokes, um, it's just assumed that some of these athletic, fantastic offensive players in college aren't going to be good defenders at the NBA level. That simply wasn't the case. McDaniels was locked in from day one on that end of the floor, and he was very impressive. Offensively, um, Jaden McDaniels in college was was a good shooter. He wasn't a great shooter. He was 33.9% from three-point range in college, 76.3% at the line. So it was kind of assumed that he would be a fairly average shooter, maybe a little above average. And he was better than that, 36.4% from three on, on 3.1 attempts per game. He was only 60% from the line, but he also, on the entire season, attempted only 45 free throws because of the way he was used offensively. And, and really, frankly, his lack of aggression in terms of putting the ball on the floor and, and trying to get to the basket. McDaniels was really primarily a spot-up three-point shooter. 54% of his field goal attempts this year came from three-point range. His free throw rate was just 0.123, which means that for every field goal attempt he took, he only shot 0.12 free throws um, because he didn't put the ball on the floor. He wasn't used very often as a cutter until a little bit later in the season. Uh, we'll get into his time under Chris Finch here in a minute, um, but he was a spot-up shooter early in the season. He didn't get very many touches. He didn't pump fake and get into the paint very often. He wasn't looking to create for others. He was a fairly limited spot-up shooter, the occasional offensive rebounder. Um, that was basically what he did. 
Um, as the season wore on, when Chris Finch took over, we saw Jaden McDaniels play a lot more at the three, uh, which to me was a bit of a revelation. He's athletic enough to do it. He Again, on defense, he can guard most threes. And depending on matchups, the Wolves could play around with that a little bit. He doesn't always need to guard threes defensively. He could guard fours depending on on uh, you know who else is on the court and and who the opponent is. But McDaniel's offensively as a three is a great fit as a cutter. Um, and he still, even under Finch, he didn't really look to create much for others at all. He didn't really look to create his own shot much at all. But he was used as a cutter a little bit more frequently. He was able to, we saw a little bit of kind of pump fake and drive really at the tail end of the season. And there's obviously unlimited potential there for McDaniels because of his athleticism, solid handle for his size and his relative inexperience. And we didn't see him try and, and finish through contact much. We didn't see him try and dunk on guys too much. But when we did see it, it was tantalizing. Um, and the lazy comparisons early on were to Kevin Durant because of build, basically. Um, but I, you know, he's not going to be Kevin Durant. They don't play the same way. However, the upside is obviously far greater than what we saw this year. There's no question about that because if he can put the ball on the floor, if he can be more effective as a cutter, if he gets out in transition and handles the ball a little bit more often, um, you know, I, 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 it's tough to think of a, a great comp offhand. I think worst case scenario, you're looking at like a, like a bigger Trevor Ariza, right? I mean, I, but I think that, I think that the, the upside is still probably higher than than a Trevor Reza type player. I do think McDaniel's has star level upside, depending on how this offensive game develops. Um, what I want to do next is I want to look at the B ball index numbers and the play types in in which McDaniel's was most and least successful. What the advanced metrics said about his season, and then also what his role should be next season, in my opinion, and what what that's going to look like here moving forward. Before we get into that, though, let's talk about BetOnline.ag. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season's now in full swing, a couple months in almost. You can track all the action at BetOnline. You can get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including the MLB, as well as NBA and NHL playoffs, and all your UFC and MMA action. Before the next pitch, head over to BetOnline on your laptop or mobile device. Check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get into the game as the playoffs are ongoing for the NBA and NHL. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today. Receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the promo code locked on. Again, that's promo code locked on for a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Let's also talk about the title sponsor of today's show. That, of course, is Built Bar. What's your favorite Built Bar flavor? There's nine to choose from right now on Built Bar's website. Uh, coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, mint brownie, peanut butter brownie, double chocolate, and salted caramel. There's something for everyone. If you haven't tried all the flavors, you can get a mixed box. You'll get two of each of the nine flavors. Most flavors have 17 grams of protein and only 130 calories, only four grams of sugar, and only four grams net carbs. Order today, get raspberry, mint brownie, whatever you like, or again, get that mix box. You can go to builtbar.com, use the promo code LOCK15, you'll get 15% off your first order. That's promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at builtbar.com. Okay, let's keep talking about Jaden McDaniels. Let's talk about the advanced metrics for him and what you know what I think his role will be next year. I'll also give him a letter grade for his rookie season as well here in a minute. Um, again, B-Ball Index, it's bball-index.com is fantastic. It's like five bucks a month. You can, uh, they compile all the advanced metrics, some proprietary numbers, some really exciting uh, kind of player value stats and, and metrics, uh, really good stuff. So Jane McDaniel's profile 
looking through what he did as a rookie, it's it's kind of what you'd expect. So they they list out top talent areas. Number one for him is interior defense. His and we'll get into those numbers here in a minute. But contesting shots, actually blocking shots, is great or was great this season for McDaniel's. Number two is off ball movement. Again, wasn't used as a cutter very often, but he was very good at getting himself open around screens. And uh, as the year progressed, more often as a cutter. Perimeter defense is number three, and perimeter shooting is number four. Um, if you look at his ability to finish, not great. He didn't get that many attempts at the rim. He didn't uh, drive and kick very often at all. It just wasn't part of his game. And again, that's something that he was a relatively low usage player, mostly a spot up shooter as a rookie. Uh, but again, off ball movement is pretty good. Um, his movement impact per 75 possessions rate graded out as a B plus according to the B ball index. The definition of that is points scored from off screen and cutting scoring chances above or below what league average efficiency would yield per 75 possessions. Again, 75th percentile. That's a B plus. He also, his effective field goal percentage off screens was 85%, which is 93rd percentile in an A. Obviously a relatively small sample size, um, but that's exactly what it sounds like. Effective field goal percentage on off-screen scoring chances, very good. And that's partly why his uh, his top talent area, um, number two, is off-ball movement, according to B-Ball Index. Uh, in terms of play types this year, Jade McDaniels in spot up opportunities was not very deadly. Only 0.95 points per possession. That's 48th percentile grades out as a C. However, in limited opportunities as a pick and roll ball handler, he was 67th percentile, grades out as a B. He was uh, 66th percentile in isolation points per possession, 67th percentile in cut points per possession, 1.3 points per possession. He was most deadly in handoff situations and coming off of screens, as we already talked about. Those both graded out as A- minus and A, respectively, in terms of his grades, uh, the percentile that he finished at. So he was best in handoff and off-screen situations. He was adequate as a cutter, adequate in isolation. Um, and, and strangely, well, maybe not strangely, I guess if, if you watch Jade McDaniels this season, this isn't a surprise, but as a pick-and-roll role man, he only averaged 0.41 points per possession. Now, he wasn't used that way very often at all because oftentimes, if he was at the four, Carl Anthony Towns was at the five, and almost all pick-and-rolls would be run with Towns. If he was on the court as a three, he was very seldom in a situation where he's setting a screen for a ball handler. But when he was in those situations, he was not effective. Um, we'll see if Finch uses him that way more often next year. My money is on him being more used as a three, which is what we saw Chris Finch do late in the year alongside either Jared Vanderbilt at the four or Juancho Hernan Gomez at the four. Perhaps we'll see him on the court with Nas Reed at the four and Towns at the five, which allows McDaniels to be more of the cutter, uh, to be a spot up guy in the corner who can dive baseline, you know, who can back cut, um, can hang out in the dunker spot a little bit, maybe even be on the elbows and some horn sets and either roll to the basket or pop outside the arc. He became appeared to be more comfortable shooting above the break threes as the season went on as well. Um, again, not an outstanding spot up shooter. You look at those numbers and they're all kind of B's and C's according to B-Ball Index, but he could catch and shoot a little bit. And uh, and that's a skill that's going to continue to develop for him moving forward. Most of the advanced metrics are, are pretty middle of the pack for him. Uh, B's, C's, and D's really kind of a, a complete mix. Um, whether you're looking at the LeBron metric, which is proprietary uh, B-Ball Index, a real plus minus at ESPN, Raptor from 530 they're literally all over the map. Uh, Real plus minus is mostly C's, Raptors mostly D's. Uh, the LeBron metric and, and uh, uh, adjusted RAPM from B-ball uh, basketball reference are both B's. Um, it, 
all over the map for Jaden McDaniels, depending on, and part of that's due to the goofy sample size, right? Didn't play much early in the season, played a lot of four, and then suddenly he was playing some three. Uh, he expanded his offensive game as the year went on. I think with with such a weird sample size and a, such a young player in a weird situation playing early in the year without starting caliber players, and then late in the year in the starting lineup between Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell with an emerging Anthony Edwards, it's so hard to rely on these metrics to really determine where a player is. And I think what we saw was a strong defensive player, a solid offensive player who who could score as a spot-up shooter, become more comfortable in his own skin as an NBA player, in the system he was playing, and with his teammates as the season went on. It's very easy to see his role next year as possibly a starting four who slides to the three and bigger lineups with Nas Reed soaking up some minutes at the four. We'll see McDaniels more as a cutter. We'll see him more as a threat in horn sets. We'll see him more diving from the corners as as both a cutter and somebody who can pump fake and get to the basket. And frankly, in in this, if this starting lineup is D'Angelo Russell, Anthony Edwards, uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's tough to say exactly what it'll look like. But say Jaden McDaniels is at the four and Towns is at the five. And we're talking about that third wing either being Malik Beasley or maybe they're starting Russell and Rubio together next year. We don't know. Um, but McDaniels is going to see minutes at both the three and the four. And it's very easy to see him being the fourth option offensively uh, behind Towns, behind Edwards, behind Russell, and depending on who all's on the floor, behind Beasley as well. Um, so in any given lineup, he's going to at least be fourth, if not fifth, in terms of scoring options. And at the same time, I think he's going to have to expand his game beyond simply being a spot-up shooter, and I think that he will. Um, I'm very encouraged with what we saw from him as a rookie. If I had to give him a letter grade for this season, I give I give Jim McDaniels an A. I, I don't see how you could could give him anything lower than that based on what the expectations were, the upside we saw on both ends of the floor. And, and frankly, he's already a solid NBA defender um, with the length to, to, to be a pest and the stick to to be a, a pest on that end of the floor. So I give him an A. I think he could very easily be a, a starting caliber player on a playoff team in the next year or two. And the, the upside there is still star level. I, I tend to think his floor is going to be a Trevor Ariza ish type player, a bigger Trevor Ariza, which is a nice player. Um, somebody who can pitch in on the glass, be a switchable defender, knock down open threes. And when he's young and athletic, do a little bit more than that offensively. Again, the upside is higher, but I do think that that's a very reasonable comp for him at this stage in his development is a Trevor Ariza type player. Um, very excited to see where he goes next year. He's another one of those players that I'm just so intrigued to see how Chris Finch uses him. And, and reportedly the Timberwolves, plenty of teams asked for him at the deadline and the Timberwolves were beyond hesitant to move him as they should be. I mean, they've got what, three more years of team control before he's going to get paid significant money. And, uh, you know, the, the sky really is the limit. And if there's a team that wants to overpay for him down the road and the Wolves have the opportunity to trade him to add another star to Carl Anthony Towns or whatever that might be, that's always a possibility too. There's no sense to rush in trading him now when we're still trying to figure out exactly what he's going to become. Um, and certainly the early returns are incredibly encouraging when it comes to Jade McDaniels. Okay, here before we close the show out, quickly on the NBA playoff action from Wednesday night. 
again, not a super compelling night uh, of action. The first game was Philadelphia-Washington. That was a 25-point Sixers win. They're up now 2-0 in the series. It'll shift to to D.C. here uh, later this week. The second game was Atlanta and the Knicks, and the Knicks were down big early, down, I think, 13 at halftime. Yeah, 13 points at halftime and had two points from Julius Randle. He had no field goals at halftime. Randle had a massive second half, of course, the newly crowned sixth man of the year, and he ended up scoring, uh, let's see, or excuse me, not sixth man, um, um, most improved player. He ended up with 15 and 12, five of 16 shooting, but had a big third quarter, and uh, the Knicks also shifted around their lineup. Alfred Payton started, only played five minutes. Derrick Rose played 39 minutes in this game, led the team in minutes, came off the bench, 26 points on 21 shots for D. Rose. And the Knicks had a big third quarter, surged ahead, and ended up winning by nine to even the series. And now it goes back to Atlanta. Uh, but the Hawks, man, they're going to be kicking themselves. They could have been up 2 nothing going home. They were up 13 at halftime. And uh, got uh, John Collins was in foul trouble, uh, didn't score in this game, completely scoreless. Clint Capella had four points. Trey Young was great, had 30. And uh, Lou Williams had five points, made one shot off the bench in 13 minutes. Uh, Danilo Gallinari wasn't much better, two of 10 shooting in 30 minutes. Just a bad all-around night for the Hawks, uh, or I should say a bad all-around second half. And the Knicks defense is fantastic. They were stifling. Um, and uh, and now they've got, they're, you know, they're right back in this thing. They, they've recovered... Um, from from that really disappointing game one loss, and we're about to be in, a, in probably what would have been an un, an insurmountable hole um, if if they were down to nothing with the series shifting back or shifting down to Atlanta, not back to Atlanta, but down to Atlanta. Um, and then the last game was Memphis Utah. Of course, Donovan Mitchell played after uh, sitting out game one, and the Jazz even the series. It'll now go back to Memphis. Uh, Mitchell only played 26 minutes and the game was still very much in the balance. He'd played 21 minutes early in the fourth quarter. I think it was like a eight, nine point game and it wasn't over, but Mitchell headed back to the locker room. It was unclear if he'd come back and play and, and the jazz to their credit continued to expand the lead with him off the floor. Jordan Clarkson played well. Um, George Niang hit a a big three during that stretch. And and right when it looked like John Rant could kind of get the Grizzlies legitimately back into this game, a game that Utah mostly controlled, um, but but Memphis had a big third quarter to, to make this thing close. Uh, the role players for Utah stepped up in a way that they didn't really you know, do that in game one. Mike Conley had 20 and 15 for, for Utah against his old team. John Morant, by the way, um, I, you know, 47 points on 26 shots, 15 and 20 from the line, 43 minutes in this game was unbelievable. Uh, they just, you know, Memphis just doesn't have the firepower to compete with a jazz team that has Donovan Mitchell and, and is for the most part firing in all cylinders. This was a regulation game, no overtime. And the final score is 141 to 129. Combined between the two teams, though, they attempted 69 free throws. So plenty of fouls called and uh, two very offensive minded teams, obviously, as well. So entertaining game, at least. Um, and the series is now tied at one going to Memphis. So, uh, you know, fun, uh, a fun close to the night, I guess, at least in terms of scoring. And then on, on Thursday, we'll get Milwaukee, Miami. That series goes to, to South Beach with the Bucks up two games to nothing. Phoenix and LA game three uh, as that, that series goes to Staples. And then Denver and Portland, and that series is tied 1-1 as well. That'll be the late game on NBA TV on Thursday night. So we'll talk about all those on Friday's show as well. And uh, otherwise, that's all we have for you on today's show. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Locked On Wolves podcast. Of course, part of the Locked On Podcast Network the Lockdown Network is all your local experts and all the biggest stories. 
And uh, today's episode, once again, brought to you by Built Bar. You can go to builtbar.com, use the promo code LOCK15, you'll get 15% off your next order. A reminder, you can follow this show uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and the all-new Odyssey app. You can also follow on Twitter at LockedOnTWolves and at BBeacon. A uh, reminder, this is a daily show. We'll be back again on Friday talking about Thursday's action, any additional news that, that potentially could break, who knows, in, in the Timberwolves ownership saga, as well as the continued series of Wolves player review, uh, Wolves player reviews as well. So uh, be sure to tune in to Friday's show. Once again, I'm Ben Beacon. This is the Locked On Wolves podcast, and we'll catch you next time. Today on the Locked On Today podcast, who has been the best player in the NBA playoffs so far? Get more of the sports news you need in less time with the Locked On Today podcast. Follow Locked On Today on the Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts.